On this episode of the Center for Cyber Social Dynamics podcast, we were joined by philosopher of science and the chair of philosophy and ethics of technoscience at the Freudenthal Institute, Federica Rousseau. Dr. Rousseau discusses the concept of poesis as a way of thinking about the human technology relationship as a partnership rather than one of mere opposition. As always, the Center for Cyber Social Dynamics podcast is hosted by our center director, John Simmons and is brought to you by the Institute for Information Sciences at the University of Kansas. We ask that you help us grow our podcast by liking, subscribing, and sharing. With that, thank you for listening and enjoy. Well, welcome everyone. We've got, uh, today we have Federica Russo joining us. It's a great honor to have you, Federica. Um, as you all know, she's a distinguished philosopher of science and technology. Um, in addition to being a professor at um, University of Amsterdam, she's also associated with UCL in London in STS. So in science technology studies, she's at the ILLC in Amsterdam, which of course is very distinguished place, needs no introduction. Um, and she's working within the language and cognition in argumentation group there. Um, Federica has been at University of Kent. She's been at Pittsburgh. She's been at Louvain. Um, and her research centers on epistemology, methodology, and normative aspects that, um, that arise um, in both the health sciences and the social sciences. Um, I think she's known for um, for the intersection between, uh, let's say, policy questions and um, and questions in epistemology broadly. So now as as um, as we all sort of grapple with our current changing technological context, um, Federica's writing, a great deal of fascinating work on um, on computation, technology generally, modeling, causal modeling, rule evidence um, in scientific infer- and scientific inference. And her latest book is uh, it's called Techno Scientific Practices: An Informational Approach. I'm, I'm getting that correct. Um, as you probably know, Federica is editor-in-chief of Digital Society um, and has been the co-editor-in-chief of the European Journal for Philosophy of Science. Um, she's sitting on the management team of the Institute of Advanced Study at the University of Amsterdam, and she's a member of the steering committee of the European Philosophy of Science Association. So Federica has all kinds of service to the profession, is, is, a, is a key player in in um, in developments in the profession in philosophy of science and is one of the most interesting thinkers in the intersection between sort of traditional philosophy of science and epistemology and um, these new questions that are emerging with um, the technology that we're all interested in studying in this group. So I, I'm, that was a long introduction, but I'm really delighted to have you, Federica, and um, I look forward to your to your presentation and the interesting, inevitably fascinating, undoubtedly fascinating conversation we'll have afterwards. So thank you so much. The floor is oh. yours. 
Thank you very much, uh, John. This was a very generous uh, introduction, and I, I feel honored that you asked me to present uh, uh, my work in, uh, in your group. Uh, I've been looking at what you do, and it sounds really great. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm very excited to discuss uh, some ideas uh, with you. Let me first share the screen. Let's see whether the technology is on our side, and then we continue. So the... Um, uh, what I want to talk about uh, uh, today uh, really is uh, how to, to think and design a human AI system. But I want to start this uh, story uh, a few steps back. The, um, I still consider myself um, um, a philosopher of science primarily. And in fact, uh, the root of this way of thinking about uh, human AI systems uh, is uh, in uh, uh, reflections that I started about philosophy of science per se, and more precisely, in trying and rethink uh, the scientific process, and more specifically, the scientific process of knowledge production uh, for uh, uh, the way in which uh, uh, instruments, technologies are really part of, of this uh, uh, process. So I'll, um, uh, what I will do is really going a few steps back and start from this division between philosophy of science and philosophy of technology and trying to restart a conversation about the role that instruments have in this, um, in this process. I did this uh, in part because uh, it has been my personal intellectual struggle to be in this uh, divide and either just talking about uh, science and uh, the typical concepts that uh, philosophers of science use, such as uh, theory, experiment, explanation, but nothing about the instruments, or at the other end of the spectrum, talking about the artifacts, the instruments, as typically philosophy of technology does, but the intersection was not there yet. And I was interested in this because I was interested in what would happen to the concept of knowledge and to the way in which we generate knowledge in techno-scientific concepts if we change the framing of the question. And uh, the, uh, the central part of, uh, uh, of the book that came out a few months ago is in this concept of, uh, of poiesis uh, that I borrow from the Greek tradition um, uh, and so it has to do with production of artifacts, but I also expanded uh, with uh, some uh, ideas that come from the philosophy uh, of information. And now this is going to, to be a pretty long introduction uh, before I, I get to, to artificial intelligence uh, and to digital technologies. But it is also uh, for me interesting to note that um, uh, it was not my intention to kind of use this notion of poiesis in uh, the research uh, on AI and the philosophy of AI. But as it is unfolding, I'm discovering that the way in which I'm trying to characterize the, uh, the relation between uh, instruments and us, it was not intentional, but then it, as it is unfolded also in the collaborations that I have and this project that just started two months ago, in practice, this idea of poiesis is really, is, is proving to be uh, useful in think of these interactions between 
us human epistemic agents and the artificial epistemic agents. And so this is how I will try and set up the discourse. And um, I will also add a few reflections on uh, why this may matter at the level of teaching. Uh, and I got uh, partly inspired by that, or at least it was uh, an interesting coincidence that as I was discussing these things with some colleagues uh, uh, in uh, in Utrecht, uh, it turned out that I listened to to your podcast, uh, John, on the on the ChatGPT, and I thought that there was a lot of consonance. So I thought I should share some of these ideas with you as well, because we seem to be very much on the on the same uh, on the same page. Okay, so oops, uh, sorry, that's it. So let me begin with uh, the, the the divide between uh, philosophy of science and philosophy of technology, and here I am. Uh, uh, kind of making a very long story pretty short. Um, what we have inherited is this division between science on the one hand and technology on the other hand, something that has roots in the, the Greek thinking and putting episteme uh, on the one side, techne on the other, and also putting episteme uh, as a hierarchical superior to, to, to techne, and so science being superior to, to technology. As things evolved over time, and especially in the, in the last century, this uh, became to kind of the correspondence between a division uh, between philosophy of science and the philosophy of technology, the two fields being by and large uh, disconnected, uh, something that I try to document in the book by looking at the way the fields are organized. Think of the conferences, think of the publications, think of uh, uh, job advertisement. It is very rare to have a profile in which we look for a philosopher of science and technology. Uh, and if we look for a philosopher of technology, it is associated with ethics. And there again, philosophy of science and not much concerned with normative questions. So it, I think this is is something that we can see out there uh, that has a, uh, sedimented in a certain uh, way. Um, the publications are also pretty different. Uh, core authors in philosophy of science, and you can think here of Nancy Cartwright, is rarely cited and discussed in philosophy of technology. And conversely, thinkers that have been highly influential in philosophy of technology, such as Don Heidi, is not... Uh, thoroughly read in philosophy of science. So there is clearly a division there, uh, and it is there. Although I think we have to be careful in making this also an, ab an absolute distinction because uh, things are gradually changing, at least from the philosophy of science side. Uh, the philosophy of science in practice has been bridging this gap to some extent. And also this claim for this division should be nuanced in historical perspective because there exist fields such as French epistemology that went largely forgotten in Anglo-American circles, but never had this sharp divide between science and technology. So there is a clearly an interesting discourse there to set up and also to learn from other uh, traditions that uh, probably did not make it into some of the mainstream that we are used to. And definitely the type of mainstream in which I have been trained, the one in Anglo-American American philosophy of science clearly overlooked 
questions of technology massively, delegating them to either the kind of analytic field tech or to the discourse uh, done by uh, sociologists of knowledge and the STS uh, community. So clearly something to be investigated there. Uh, with this background, what happened to me is that um, I've always been interested in uh, how we generate knowledge of and uh, looking primarily at uh, the biomedical sciences and the social science context and understanding how through certain modeling strategies we get to establish knowledge of this and of that. But uh, over time, something really kind of became clear to me. And there was a big pink elephant in the room. And so something that became really the kind of the big pink elephant in the room for me was that we were not considering the role of uh, instruments in this discourse about uh, knowledge generation. They were clearly not uh, part of, uh, uh, of the picture. Um, you can say uh, that new experimentalists have been looking at uh, the experimental setup. And that is true. In new experimentalism, there is uh, in part this attention. But ultimately, what they have been trying to show is that we have to look at experiments and the experimental setup, not just for the role they have in confirming theories, but also for, uh, uh, in, the, in their own terms. So the question for me, it is still there. If we consider proper the proper epistemic role of instruments in this techno-scientific context, how does this discourse on knowledge uh, change? And uh, to, to illustrate briefly what I have in mind here, I'm going to give you two episodes that I have been, two episodes of techno science that I have been studying in uh, quite uh, some, uh, some detail. Um, one is molecular epidemiology. What I found very, very interesting to, uh, to, uh, to study through and through in molecular epidemiology is that technologies are essentials at all stages from data generation to interpretation. Molecular epidemiology marks um, an important um, change in, uh, in epidemiology because uh, uh, unlike uh, traditional epidemiology, they changed the scale of measurement uh, dramatically. They have started measuring exposure and aspects of disease at the molecular level. And this uh, entailed a lot of analysis of uh, biosamples, but also generating data in, in, uh, in new uh, ways. So it is not that uh, they have been doing the same thing, but just uh, at a uh, a more granular level. It is, uh, I think it is fair to say that none of what they do in, uh, in the exposome research in molecular epidemiology could be done without the technology. They could not generate this uh, type of data. They could not run uh, the analysis of biosamples in the way they do. And because the data set became so big, they would not be able at all to perform the analysis. So here is not just a matter of uh, understanding more. It is really a matter also of creating part of the scientific object that they are studying. And this is, of course, very common through the uh, uh, 
the natural sciences, the biomedical sciences. And of course, when one starts to talk about the role of technologies, the Large Hadron Collider comes to mind and all the sophisticated um, technological equipment that we may have in astrophysics, uh, in high energy physics, you name it. And so as a contrast, I like to, to, put, to, to consider computational history of ideas as the other case, because the humanities too uh, are concerned with this shift in, in focus. Computational history of, uh, of ideas uh, is uh, um, uh, a way of introducing the use of uh, software uh, for the digitalization of text and uh, uh, later also for the analysis of large corpora. So historians of ideas have been relying essentially on qualitative uh, approaches such as close readings. And now the temptation would be, thanks to the technology, we can investigate just more of, of this text. But in fact, that is, I think, a superficial understanding of what happens. Very well done. Uh, of what happens. Because in computational history of ideas, they also build up ontology. They conceptualize the very concept of ideas in different ways. And through this, then they use the technology to uh, find out things that would not be visible otherwise than just with the method of close reading. And what happens is not that there is a replacement of humans. There is really a combination of the close reading that the human reader does together with the type of analysis that you can perform thanks to um, certain type of softwares, digital, digitalization of text and other uh, techniques. So what has become very, very interesting uh, for me here uh, in episodes like this is to understand what is the proper role of instruments in this process of knowledge production. But why do I want to put so much emphasis on the instrument? So on the one hand, I would like to say that instruments do more than just mediating between us and the world. And this is an idea that has become uh, pretty uh, dominant in philosophy of technology and especially in the post-phenomenological tradition, this idea of mediation. And I want to be able to say that from a philosophy of science perspective, they do more than mediating. Also, uh, some people, especially in philosophy of science, have been thinking that, uh, that the instruments uh, augment our capacities to see the smaller or the bigger. And I want to be able to say that there is more than just augmenting. There is more than just enhancing ability to analyze more data. And in this sense, uh, philosophers of science have been pretty naive in just assuming that with the technology you see more. So I want to be able to articulate what is the proper role of the instruments in a, in a here. I'm now uh, going to the important part of how I analyze the, the, the role of the instruments, but I'm going to give you the solution first. Uh, what I am interested in is how we can come to reconceptualize knowledge in this techno-scientific concept. And clearly, the, 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 the critical target here, uh, coming from 
and Anglo-American and analytic philosophy of science tradition is knowledge as justified through belief. Uh, we cannot just analyze knowledge as justified through belief. There is much more that knowledge is in text scientific concept context and that I encapsulate with the acronym RDM that stands for relational, distributed, embodied and, and material. So what I'm going to give you there is how I try to characterize knowledge, and it is really the result I get at. Let me read this in full. Knowledge is a product of techno-scientific activities carried out by epistemic agents. It is often expressed in propositional form in natural language. It is also encapsulated in material objects and is situated with respect to a number of social, cultural, or material aspects. So when I give you a characterization of this, what I'm trying to do is to grasp the many aspects that are relevant to understand what knowledge is in techno-scientific concept. I'm not trying to give you a definition. I'm trying to highlight things we may be interested in at different moments of different types of investigations. So. There are elements of uh, relation, for instance, in the way we relate concepts to each other, but also in the way in which we relate data uh, to theory, the ways in which we, we relate the experimental results uh, against some background. There are elements of distribution across uh, human epistemic agents, across the communities, also across uh, agents that are artificial and uh, uh, human. There are elements of embodiment because the way in which we know the world depends on uh, also uh, our bodies and how we know with our body. And this is something that we can uh, learn uh, from a cognitive science to some extent. But I'm also trying to bring into this discussion new materialism and this course developed, for instance, by Karen Barad and how much we interact with the instruments in certain environment. And this is part of how we generate knowledge. There are important elements of materiality because the instruments are material, but we cannot reduce everything to this uh, materiality. And clearly there are elements of propositionality and the vernacularity has a, a large role in this because after all, we express results in natural language in our academic publications, in the presentations, but we cannot just flatten what knowledge is to propositional uh, contents. All these elements are interrelated rather than isolated. And what I want to be able to say is that one element may become more prominent depending on the specific question at hand. And so in this way, I want to give room for a philosophy of science perspective proper, or a philosophy of technology proper, or a more STS, or, th or those who are more interested in the power structure in science, and so uh, analyzing also these elements of distribu distribution across uh, institutions and funding agencies and aspects like, uh, like that. Now, 
If I try to reformulate my question is how can I cash out the partnership of human and artificial agents in the process of knowledge production? So that's why I had to make a long story about how to reframe knowledge, because I want to be able to say that instruments have a proper epistemic role along us in the generation of this um, uh, uh, in the generation of knowledge in this context. And here is where I, I come to the idea of poiesis or how I try to express the fact that we co-produce uh, knowledge together with the instruments. So remember, it's not I'm just looking for the mediation. I don't want to flatten this all onto the instrument, but I really want to be able to understand how we do this together. The legacy that I have here uh, um, uh, traces us back uh, really to Greek uh, thinking because poiesis uh, um, from Greek uh, philosophy is about the production of uh, artifact. It is about techne. It is not about episteme. And as I said, it is uh, the root of the alleged superiority of episteme over techne. So this is clearly the legacy that I have to, to discuss in part. But there is also something important that comes from the philosophy of information because poiesis has been introduced in the philosophy of information to explain how moral agents are also um, uh, producers of the environment that they are in. And this has to be taken into account when we try to um, understand or uh, perform some ethical assessment of a certain situation because much of traditional ethics is about what is right and what is wrong but from the philosophy of from the from the perspective of the philosophy of information the idea is to be able to say how we come to be in a given situation and so moral agents are poetic uh, agents in, in an important way what I'm trying to do with poiesis here against these two big legacies, one more far away in time from Greek philosophy and one more recent from the philosophy of information, is to substantially enlarge the semantic space of poiesis in the following way. Human epistemic agents have poetic character. So clearly we are involved in the production of artifacts. This is a topos in Greek philosophy and also in the philosophy of technology. It is not my main interest here, but clearly it, there is, it is something that is at stake. We are the producers of all the artifacts that we use in techno-scientific context and in everyday life. But I want to be able to say as well that also, the production of knowledge is something that, to, that has to do with poiesis. So here I am expanding the idea of homopoieticus as moral agent as to include human epistemic agents qua techno-scientists and also qua philosophers. And here, this is how it may strike, it may be, feel like it's striking because a Greek philosopher would never accept that we produce uh, knowledge because what we produce is something that is external to us. And for the Greek thinkers, is some knowledge is something that is really internal. So here you may have a tension, but I want to be able that 
um, uh, knowledge is something that we generate, that we produce. And one reason why I want to be able to make this argument is that knowledge does not fall from the sky and we have to be able to express how much effort it takes to get to establish what knowledge is. And I also had uh, objections from those who would be uh, more realist and be uh, not at ease with this idea that we produce knowledge because it may open the door to uh, relativistic uh, accounts typical of sociology of science. But I don't think I, I necessarily go that road. I just want to be able to, to emphasize that we have to, to consider very seriously how much uh, it is an act of, of production from, my, from our side and not just an intellectual intuition and that in this, uh, the instruments have a proper role. So this gets me to the poetic character of artificial epistemic agents. On the one hand, uh, it would be easy to make the argument that this is the case because of digital technologies and especially because of those technologies such as generative AI nowadays that are able to modify uh, the environment. But I think this would be too quick uh, an argument. And uh, in the book, I have engaged with, again, French epistemology and especially with the philosophy of Simon Don to try and explain the way in which also analog technologies have the power in degrees, of course, to modify the environment together with us. And so we have to be able to understand how much together we and the technologies have this power to create, to generate the data, to analyze the data, and also to interact with the environment in different ways. Now, what I think becomes crucial is that um, we don't have to, to get to the quick solution that the instruments do everything and we do nothing or the other way, the other way around. It is really uh, to be able for every single episode of technoscience that we want to investigate, how we have to modulate how much we are involved, how much the instruments are involved, but also there are questions at the normative level that easily and quickly kicks in because there are responsibilities that then become involved. And these are both epistemic and moral. And when I say this, what I have in mind is, for instance, uh, all the debate about um, algorithms and how much agency and autonomy they acquire. And then the argument becomes very quick to say, Oh, but there isn't much we can do. No, there is a lot that we can do because we are also the designers of these algorithms. And so we can decide how much autonomy and how much agency we may want to give to these uh, technologies. So that was really kind of a long story. But for me, it was very important to, to rethink that in uh, many of the settings that and uh, many of the, the, the scientific cases that uh, myself and my colleagues, uh, philosophers of science have been investigating, really the role of technologies and of instruments uh, have not played a large role. And here I've been trying to say how it plays a role because the, the technologies are there and they have a proper epistemic role in this, in this process. Now, you may think this is um, uh, perhaps uh, an intriguing uh, story. Maybe it is a way in which we may bridge philosophy of science and philosophy uh, of, of technology. But uh, what is this for? 
what is this for? Is is uh, that's really not what I what I had in mind when I started working on this. But as I started collaborating with also with other people, it seemed to me that uh, it may be uh, one way in which. We look at uh, AI and some of the challenges ahead of us because of uh, generative AI and many digital technologies that we are uh, in use. So let me try and, and, and say, what is the point of adopting this stance in research? Um, one project that uh, started just two months ago the acronym is uh, SOLARIS, and it's a very long uh, title that it has, but basically it is about understanding deep fakes. And uh, when we wrote the proposal, it was largely about general generative adversarial networks, understanding how these deep fakes are generated, how they spread on social media, uh, how they can threaten democratic uh, processes. That was one the main uh, objective of the call uh, of the uh, of the EU uh, funding scheme that we applied to. Um, what we are interested in, and I'm going to give you some elements of how we are going to run this analysis. We are interested in uh, seeing how users trust deep fakes from a system uh, perspective. And I'm going to say a bit more about the system perspective in a, in a moment. Uh, of course, a part of the project will also be about what is the appropriate level of intervention to, the, to diminish the effects of infodemics, but also what is the, the, the good use of, for, uh, of deepfakes. Because what is becoming clear uh, in, um, in just in the past uh, few weeks of, uh, of carrying out the research is that this has literally exploded uh, from the time we wrote the proposal uh, just uh, uh, about a year ago until now, um, it is a totally different uh, landscape. When we started, it was mainly uh, generative adversarial networks that were used to produce deepfakes. And now there is a whole array of technologies that are able to produce deepfakes about pictures, videos, uh, reproducing even voices, and this um, in matter of even minutes and three clicks away from uh, spreading uh, deepfakes on, uh, on social media. But what I, what I would like to show you is how this system perspective and so also this way of um, uh, analyzing the role of humans and uh, the instruments in the same uh, in the same system may change it because what we are trying to say here related to to deep fake uh, is not that all depends uh, on uh, on the technology or that all depends on the user for instance say oh we are very naive and we trust whatever we are trying to set up an analysis in which we identify uh, several elements or aspects that may play a role. This may um, depend on uh, visual content, uh, for instance, uh, whether uh, disclosure of uh, authenticity or inauthenticity is done or not, what is actually the function of deepfake content, uh, what happens with the representation of the target. And here we will uh, uh, we will um, work a lot with colleagues in visual semiotic to understand how 
changing uh, the target and the part of the content may uh, change in um, uh, in turn the perception of of trust also the integration of inauthentic content in something that was originally authentic but at the same time we are also interested in understanding how the view viewing the content may make a difference. The medium of communication, the audience reception, and also the relationality and framing. So, for instance, it may make a difference whether deep fakes are shared, say, on social media, and there you get a lot of uh, suggestions for you may also like this, this, and this, or whether this gets to your WhatsApp. Uh, messaging and it comes from one of your relatives or your trusted friends. You see, Um, we are also trying to set up an analysis of uh, paratextual uh, knowledge coming to establish degrees of uh, truthfulness, how much content comes across as being true depend and maybe or may not be intentional but also how is the perceived identity of the target and how is this uh, deep fake discourse uh, carried out at a different uh, uh, level what i find interesting in the type of analysis that we that we are setting up is that it inherits some of the elements of uh, um, actor network theory, because basically we are putting a number of elements on the same level, just as A and T would do, without uh, um, a pre-order priority. So us, the instrument, the generated content, specific elements of the generated content, parts of the environment, part of the technologies, and then, unlike uh, A and T, that then does not really take uh, a strong stance about uh, the, the production. Here, we want to be uh, more in line with this idea of, of poiesis and then say that uh, the instruments also have poetic character in not only generating the content, but also generating uh, the trust. At the same time, the idea of this system level analysis is also to say that it's not just on the technology and on the generated content. It is also on how us, human epistemic agents, interact with this and uh, in an environment. This is still in the early uh, stages. So I'm sure you will have uh, uh, questions and especially doubts that this is going to work out. But this is exactly what I was discussing just with this morning with my colleagues, that um, the analysis of this has to be very complex and uh, inc- include very many different levels of, uh, of analysis. And this is what we will be trying uh, to do in the, in the coming months. Let me now turn to uh, something that is not usual to discuss for us uh, philosophers of science, but um, people in, in, in education may be more used to that, especially when they have an interest in how technology changes the landscape of, of education. And again, as I said, I was very pleased to, to hear from John that he was thinking along the same lines about ChatGPT. So I'm, I'm using this as an excuse to continue and pick up on, on, on that um, chain of thoughts. So think of uh, how, for instance, the writing experience with a very old-fashioned 
uh, pen and ink. How this has changed the moment we introduced uh, more modern uh, pens that have the roll ball. And how this has changed the moment we introduced um, pens that can also be erased and you could rewrite uh, on the same page. This happened when I was a young kid at school, actually. And so, you know, the... Um, or likewise, uh, you can start thinking of why do we still need to uh, learn handwriting the moment we have computers? Why do we still need to learn to make calculations the moment we have calculators on our phone, on our computers, and we have very sophisticated ones? And this is clearly on top of the agenda of people in education, how much of technology you want to introduce in education uh, settings, right? So uh, these are clearly important questions. And um, you can ask the question of how the technologies uh, have changed and uh, are changing our learning and thinking process. A question that is interesting also to ask from the perspective of, of cognitive uh, science. And I'm sure that each one of us can also reflect on our way of uh, learning, thinking and writing, because if we are old enough, we have also uh, changed these technologies in different uh, ways. And also how to make a balanced use of these technologies in uh, in teaching at different uh, levels. So that's why I was saying there is still something to be asked about the value of uh, teaching handwriting or calculation. And uh, I have some intuitions from a philosophy of science and technology perspective. And at some point, I was very much interested in hearing the perspective of teachers that may be very different and may have different reasons for uh, keeping these uh, low-key technological um, um, uh, interventions like handwriting, um, although effectively now we uh, type uh, all the time, right? And this, I hope you can see that there is a deep connection with the idea of, uh, of poiesis. We tend to think of the learning process as something highly intellectual, but in fact, it is not just mediated by the instrument. It is also co-constructed with uh, with the instrument so this is something that i would be able at some point to uh, to articulate in a context that is not a techno scientific such as uh, molecular epidemiology or such as computational history of ideas but that ultimately has an important role um, in uh, in our academic environment now questions that i'm interested in as i say is how do technology structure our thinking, writing, and speaking? How to educate and train advanced students or early career to be self-reflective about the role, the user role of technologies, but also how much technology am I allowed to use or do I want to use? Now, these things may seem highly disconnected again, but I hope I, I will be able to show you that the connection is there. So, oh, this uh, scramble entirely the, uh, um, the animation. So. Think, for instance, of how you can structure your thinking differently if you use uh, Microsoft Word Basic or writing in LaTeX, where you are much more forced of thinking of the structure of a document. So this is effectively a piece of software that then translates into, into text. And now that we have very simple ways of generating text, 
such as ChatGPT, then you really want to ask the question, why should I bother writing my own paper when uh, an artifact can write it for me? Now, here there is something to be said about our role as uh, intellectuals, thinkers, and this also has to be uh, done in connection with the regulation. It was uh, quite interesting for me that uh, uh, after a couple of weeks I took over the, uh, the editorship of Digital Society, I received an email from Springer saying, watch out because uh, um, this uh, um, AI uh, system cannot be listed as co-author under our regulation, but uh, we are encouraging authors to document in the methodology section or anywhere else in the paper in case they have used these technologies for the writing of the paper. You see, it is not outright, no, you don't have to use it. It is watch out from a legal perspective. These are not authors at the moment. Yet, if you are using it, you have to tell us how you are using it. So this for me, and now I put on my hat as, uh, as a supervisor, it is a, a conversation that I need to have with my PhD students with the early careers and also with my master's students writing their thesis, okay? Because the, the point there is not just I'm going to run a, a plagiarism uh, software or I'm going to use this uh, detection software to see whether the content has been generated by the AI. The question is why? it is important that we generate content or why it is okay that we make this content partly generated by an AI, right? I don't have an answer to that. I'm just putting this on the table as something that we may want to discuss. And this is exactly the idea of poiesis, not to demonize that the technology is part and parcel of my writing process, but thinking of how I want the technology to be part of my thinking and writing process. And likewise, uh, giving presentation, which is something we do all the time, is something that has changed. In the past, we used to, uh, uh, to, to make no use whatsoever of visual uh, support. Then we had the, the, the translucent things that we had to print out. Then we got PowerPoint. And then and now we even have uh, an assistant on the PowerPoint giving us suggestions how to set up a beautiful uh, slide, right? There again, I think there is something very, very interesting to to, uh, to reflect upon, and that clearly you may uh, consider it just uh, um, from a legal perspective. This is what most people will do, kind of jump on it and say, hey, wait a minute, we have to regulate authorship. Or you may, as I'm trying to do, to think a bit more deeply of uh, how this partnership happens and also be able to make decisions for myself on the one hand, but also to help the more junior generation to see how they want to go about uh, this interaction with the technologies. Okay, so I'm coming really to, to the conclusion. Um, technology has always been uh, there with us, uh, not uh, breaking news, and it's not going to go uh, away at all. If anything, it is going to be even more complicated 
uh, how we have to negotiate our relationship with, with technology. Uh, clearly, there have been very many uh, changes and transformations, and there will be many more in the future. The one, the big challenge that we are forced, we are forced to, to, to face now is with these generative AI uh, technologies. The deep fakes is the one that I am investigating with colleagues just now, but I also gave you examples of how this may be um, present in our daily life as academics. And um, now I'm kind of going back to where I started. Um, I don't want to start just with, oh, we have a problem, panic, what do we do? I think there is a discourse to be set up uh, from a proper philosophy of science perspective. And this is what I was trying to, to show that we have, I would like to think in terms of partnership, not in terms of opposition. And so thinking of how this may influence our research ahead, our teaching, our learning, writing, and speaking, and other types of activities. And I sense that if we can phrase this in terms of partnership and also make a active decisions about how much we want the technology to be present in our research, in our writing activities, etc., then I think we can set up, set up a discourse uh, for the future also uh, at, the, um, at the normative uh, level. And with this, uh, I conclude, and I also would like to, to thank the PowerPoint designer for giving me uh, ideas just to show that uh, I am uh, tinkering with these uh, technologies uh, myself. Thank you. Well, thank you, Federica. Um, so lots of deep and important questions on the table. I know that in this group, I noticed uh, we have Ramon, Ramon Alvarado popped in. He's been writing about instruments and um, and uh, AI, AI as a sort of a cognitive instrument. Uh, we've got David Thomas on the call, who's been leading the uh, group on privacy and deep fakes here at KU. Uh, we have Antonio Fonseca on the call, who's also deeply interested in these questions. Denise is here. So um, why don't I solicit your question. So if you raise your hand, um, I'm going to put the thing up here. If you raise your hand, then um, then I'll I'll try to keep track and I'll make a list. So to begin with, uh, Joe and Ramon. Let's begin with Joe. So Joe Bernal. Great. Thank you. Thank you for the presentation. It's really excellent. Uh, I really enjoyed it because there's a lot of stuff that I think uh, I've thought about in very much the same way. I think there's a lot of uh, shared interest there. Uh, I have a bunch of questions, but in particular, I'm trying to get to, uh, how do you see the role of, uh, I was thinking about uh, alternative forms of knowledge, non-propositional forms of knowledge. Uh, that came to mind because uh, I wrote a paper about Ian Hacking's uh, entity realism in uh, philosophy science and his instrumentalist appeals. And what I thought that was Interesting was that um, in appealing to instrumentalism, you know, what was what he didn't explicitly say, but what I was wondering about is how the role of the experimenter, how they, how that uh, acquaintance and how to knowledge they acquire, you know, through the use of the instrument, they cannot be quite representative propositionally, right? It's it's that experimental 
knowledge, that person who knows how to work the equipment, who knows how to make those fine adjustments. Uh, so I was curious, uh, your thoughts on, uh, on yeah, non-propositional forms of knowledge. So th- for me, the interest in uh, broadening significantly the characterization of knowledge would be exactly to be able to include uh, what you say, I mean, uh, this non-propositional aspect uh, in a fundamental uh, uh, way, which you cannot do if you keep working with JTB uh, implicitly or explicitly. So definitely, I don't want to uh, just uh, uh, get rid of JTB uh, and of propositional knowledge because we do express uh, knowledge in propositional terms, but I want to be able to say how much knowledge also happens at the level that is material, material on the instruments uh, or material in the sense of embodied uh, or in the sense of the an environment and the environment again can have materiality but also institutional uh, aspects you see so that's what you are saying is exactly right and that's exactly what i'm trying to to bring in as a legitimate part of a philosophy of science discourse ramon hi uh, thank you very much for your talk i really appreciate it i'm you know i'm actually right now i'm finishing my paper uh, revisions from my paper on ai as an epistemic technology so this is very relevant um, and I've been writing on the topic. So what, what you say is really resonant with three figures that I can think of in the philosophy of computing and philosophy of science, right? So Herbert Simon, when he talks about the sciences of artifacts, um, then you have Davis Bird uh, in the um, attempt to make instruments a source of knowledge independent from theory and experimentation, right? And then, of course, of course, Paul Humphreys that says, you know, we have this symbiosis with instruments such that they enhance our epistemic capacities towards the future in three different ways. But one of the things that I see with these three figures is um, this sort of externalism that they are acknowledging that with these instruments and with these new technologies, we're not just creating knowledge, we are discovering knowledgeable things. And in that discovering, there's something that's happening, according to Humphreys, that as we make these artifacts more and more capable in enhancing our epistemic capacities, we also start making them a little bit further and further away from what we can understand or do. So in fact, the tension comes because these technologies, we're developing these technologies so that they do stuff that we cannot do. And so that they do stuff in ways that we cannot do. And in that sense, for Humphreys, we are kind of offloading epistemic agency onto the objects themselves, right? And so I was wondering if this idea that the more capable these objects are, the more we offload these epistemic capacities towards them, and the more they do these epistemic tasks farther away from the way we do them, does this do anything to your idea that we're actually ultimately able to cooperate with these instruments? Because it seems that if, if this is the case, ultimately, uh, we're being left, according to Humphreys, for example, rest in peace, we're being left behind uh, in the epistemic um, projects and processes by these machines that were supposed to help us to enhance our epistemic agency. And so in some sense, we're actually reducing our own epistemic agency. And so it's a sort of... Um, um, 
zero-sum game here, right? I don't know if you agree with that or, or if you don't, or if it does something to your idea of epistemic cooperation. Thank you, Ramon. That's a, that's a fantastic uh, question. That's exactly the, the kind of thing I'm trying to problematize with this idea of, of poiesis. And uh, I, I, I don't have a definite stance on, on the things that you raised, but that's exactly what I would be able to 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 investigate in uh, in depth. You see, so I'm trying now to give you a few uh, uh, a few ideas of how I would go uh, about it. So on the on the so yes, there is a danger that uh, uh, we we have a, a big gap, kind of a distance between uh, us and the instruments because the instruments do things that we cannot do. That's exactly what I was trying to say with the molecular uh, epidemiology, right? I mean, uh, it's not just a kind of looking through a microscope and analyzing a biosample. What a mass spectrometer does is something I would not be able to do in any possible uh, way. So are we introducing that a gap? I think it is possible that we are introducing a gap, but maybe we have to reintroduce uh, a consideration of how much of us and our thinking and of our design goes into the machine. Then you might say there will be cases in which no matter how much I am able to kind of uh, log uh, this process from theory to the construction of the artifact, then the machine will do its thing. That's the problem with these nested algorithms in climate science, right? And that's probably one of the things that you have in the back of your mind. So this is where my intuition is, uh, is that maybe we have to become a bit more normative, right? And instead of accepting that uh, things can go that way and then we introduce this big gap, then we have to say, no, the gap is too big. We don't want that gap, you know, precisely for the reasons that, that, you, that you mentioned. Because being partners also means being in some kind of dialogue. If I lose total control from what the machine does, maybe that's not a partnership anymore, right? So I, I guess that with this idea of poiesis, uh, I could uh, navigate uh, uh, a more descriptive level and a more normative uh, level uh, and analyze some of these contentious, uh, these contentious cases. So I think you are putting the finger exactly on what I, I think, I hope uh, one would be able to do with this concept. Good, good. Um, do we, do you want to follow up, Ramon, or shall we go on to the... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I can follow up, but it's, it's again, it's a worry that I have, and and and, and I'm afraid that I'm just going to repeat myself because you know, it's um, if you if you read the the conclusion, which is just one paragraph to extending ourselves by Paul Humphreys, right? The conclusion there is that the the cat is out of the bag. We've done this. We've been doing this since we came up with computational methods. So he's not talking about AI or large language models. He's talking about simulations in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? And so he's saying, like, look, now we found we found a better method for the acquisition of knowledge. How can we go back? It just so happens that that acquisition no longer, I mean, that method doesn't 
involve us anymore, right? Um, and I know, I know with your, you know, with the techno science approach that you're trying to bring back, I'm, 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 I'm afraid that what you're doing is not so much bringing the instrument back. I think what you're trying to do is bring the human back into the loop. Um, oh, as well, or, yes, or, yes. Right? Um, but but that's because if we accept Humphrey's ideas, um, we, we already are far behind the, the, the machines that we've evolved or, or came up with for knowledge acquisition and creation. Um, and so, you know, the, I think the last sentence, I have it right here it, uh, of that, it says, um, if, if this is true, the philosophy of science, or at least part of that of which deals with epistemology, no longer belongs to humans or the humanities, right? Um, and so, again, I, I don't know if you want to sort of, um, I don't know if I'm repeating myself, but it, it, is a, it is a fear that is very complex, and it's not so much part of the paranoia that's going on right now, but it's it's still very much there. That That's an interesting uh, thought, Ramon, really, because, yes, I mean, there, there have been places in, in the book where I say uh, the, the humans have to be in this process. That's why I was talking about the responsibilities. I guess it is because this project for me started from philosophy of science where the instruments are absent, that I was trying to put the instrument in the, in the typical philosophy of science discourse. But I think you are totally right that then if you look at it from the Enfri's uh, perspective, then yes, the project is to put the humans uh, back and they, we have to be back. And um, so two things you said, Ramon, that I would like to, to comment on briefly. One is, is that Enfri uh, said it is uh, a better way of generating knowledge. I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't take this for granted. I, I think this needs to be discussed precisely because of the considerations that, that you made. If it is true that we are introducing this big gap and we don't even understand what the machine does, then I don't know if it is better. So, But because there is this presence of both, I want to discuss the presence of both and the role of both, okay? The other aspect that, uh, uh, that you said, let me try because I, I, uh, now the, 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 uh, the thing, the, 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 the thought escaped me. The one was the, the, the better knowledge. Uh, ah, yes. Uh, now it is kind of too late. I don't think it is too late. And um, I've been thinking about that in discussing with students who are super quick in catching kind of the stakes of this. And this is where I uh, I realized that I, I I've been also a philosopher of medicine for a long time, and all this regulation in in, in medicine, say drug approval, did not happen over time, right? So maybe AI should learn from medicine here because they have introduced the protocols and the regulation of pharmacovigilance and all these things also gradually, precisely because at some point it was too late. They had the scandals. It was going bad. So now that we are realizing this, so maybe we should think about how much of this technology we want, how much of autonomy we want to uh, to give, right? So yes, there is a lot in climate science and elsewhere that escapes our, that we, we don't have a grip on, but you, then you can say from tomorrow on, you do this only if we establish the rules. Why is this not possible? It is possible. So that's how I, I would go. So I think I, I love your questions. And I and I hope that this helps have this conversation, not in a way that it is too late, there's nothing we can do, but really to regain uh, a responsibility role that we have. 
Um, so we're sort of verging into the territory of governance, and uh, I'm happy to see that Denisa has her hand up. Um, so, um, so a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, Federica, for causing this, and Ramon. I like the provocation, but my question will be: Who is this we that will do this? Oasis with the technology because right now when you look what is happening just today it's like this call for a moratorium like this idea that for six months all the companies will just stop developing models i mean it's on a, it's it's so ridiculous and it's on a website of an organization called what is it long-term minimum like some transhumanist uh, um like we that is formed around this uh, demand that we need to catch up with ai and so on and um but i do like um i do like what you so so first of all i have a deeper problem. I think it's not just epistemic agency that is taken away from us. Mm -hmm. What I see as more disturbing is also the moral and ethical agency, because when you look at all these ideas of alignment and embedding ethics and these standards that they are trying to create with AI, it's almost like, you know, they'll just make like some codes that will rule the behavior of the users. And in some sense, they're trying to do that even before the AI with these community guidelines and all this like nonsense. So almost even that, that form of an agency for us to decide what should be the rules of the game is taken from us with this prospect of with synthetic data, we will create better policies. And I don't know. So um, my, my, I have even like a deeper issue than uh, Ramon that I think even this type of agency is taken from us. And then maybe where we need to go back because we are having some type of a FIDROS discussion here. <laughs> Maybe we really need to go back to that moment that we divided epistemic questions from uh, from these like moral question. So it is go we need to go back to epistemic and techne and where is the moral thing in the techne? I, I honestly don't know, but I feel like we really need to stop thinking like Plato in some of the dialogues that first we will have an insight and then we will know what to yeah. do. Maybe it's not about the epistemic agency after all that should have priority over our actions. Uh, so I'm not certain where I'm going with this. I kind of agree with both of you and um, a lot. Uh, thank you, because it will take a lot of time for me to process. Thank you for this uh, for these questions, Denise. Uh, totally spot on. So as a, as a kind of disclaimer, um, the, the book really originated as a philosophy of science book, if you see. So I the primary question was really about uh, uh, knowledge and how we come to establish knowledge in this uh, traditional context. But uh, obviously the, uh, the, the the step from epistemic to moral is very, very short. You are totally right. And I, I, I try to anticipate some of these questions in the book by saying, hey, next on the agenda is... Uh, uh, all these uh, normative dimension that I, I have not analyzed in the book, but it doesn't mean it is unimportant. If anything, I hope to be to be able to do this with that kind of, uh, uh, of approach. And I hope, again, that if we can think, and you say it very well, we cannot go back to, to Plato, you know, in this. I think that's exactly the point. In setting up the, the question about the moral agency, we cannot go back to Plato anymore. So these the instruments are there. And then we have to, to think of how the moral question is to be asked differently because of these partnerships. So uh, 100% with, with you that we have a huge uh, issue. And um, 
we have to to tackle it and it is not just about uh, that the the the, the, the the ethical question arises because of the use of technology. You see, because that's the other, the other, the other uh, wrong uh, step that uh, people have made in in the past. You know, philosophy of science thinking of a value neutrality ideal, and then problem arises because you use the technology. With this, I'm trying to say the moral question arises already at the level of knowledge production. That's why I'm raising uh, the question of responsibility, which is epistemic and moral. I'm just going to give you um, a quick example. Fantastic research on biomarkers in the, across the health sciences. What are the consequences of that? No, it's not a neutral concept from uh, from a moral perspective, okay? So the fact that we can technologically study, identify, validate biomarkers has to go hand in hand with what am I going to do with this knowledge of biomarkers, you see? And probably this goes to the the, the problem of epistemic uh, gap. So this is how I'm trying to put the question of morality straight close to the question of epistemology there. Totally with you. Then you, you started with who is the we. Yes, who is the we? Uh, there are different we's, we in, uh, in this uh, discourse. That's why I, I think it is important uh, to have this uh, element of distribution, not just because you say, well, it is distributed and then nobody knows where it is distributed, but precisely because for every given case, we have to be able to say across which agents this is distributed. So who are the communities that are uh, relevant? Now, in the simplest case, when I'm typing my book, it is distributed between me and the computer, but also among my colleagues that have been commenting on this. But you're right, there are communities there and we have to understand who these communities are. Maybe now the, 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 uh, the analogy with medicine and philosophy of, of medicine becomes relevant again because you know one thing is big pharma, one thing is the research done in university hospital, uh, one thing is the meta-analysis commissioned by by the uh, by the uh, the, uh, the government of health uh, and uh, whatever you know and so these are different uh, epistemic communities and the regulation has to be different and so we have to consider these things so uh, agreed 100% again thank you for uh, for bringing this up you want to follow up denisa or should we move to maria okay maria you're up uh, let's let's try. Can you hear works. me now? Yes, perfect. Good. <laughs> Thank you, Federica, for for your talk. I I have a question regarding maybe the notion um, of trust that underlies this partnership, um, because it seems to me that one of the one of the issues with this epistemic gap and and the the ignorances that surround uh, the incorporation of these technologies into our epistemology is that maybe the notion of trust is not as robust, epistemically speaking, as what we have in mind when we have uh, discussions about real epistemic reliability, especially in philosophy of science. So uh, maybe you you have a weaker idea of what what the trust is that makes this relation reliable despite even if we acknowledge that, that this epistemic gap exists and that it's 
quite problematic for us as philosophers, but maybe there is something in, in, in the ground that helps us to understand. Thanks, Maria. Uh, nice to see you and uh, excellent uh, question. I haven't developed uh, a lot on the notion of trust, uh, to, to be honest, uh, in part because this is a notion that uh, is uh, uh, now popular because of uh, AI, uh, but it is not part of the traditional baggage of philosophers of science. But what I had tried to do in the book was to... Um, um, uh, to rethink the notion of validity, which is instead the notion that has been more used by philosophers of science, especially in the variant internal, external validity, etc. And I was trying to say that validity is something more holistic that has to do with your model, your background knowledge, who you are, the instruments. So I was trying kind of to, to embed um, how much we trust the instrument in the fact that they contributed to uh, establish whether or not the, or not the results of a given study are, are valid. I think one could actually set up um, a parallel, uh, not a parallel, actually um, uh, um, a complementary research in, in, and to understand the sense in which we trust the, the instrument. Uh, and I totally, totally agree. I haven't done that, but I think this should be uh, up next to 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 uh, enrich what I was trying to uh, uh, to do. But I think the reason why I I hadn't used the um, the, the notion is because it it is not part of this philosophy of science background. It comes from another one, but maybe we have to uh, somehow incorporate it in the way that you are suggesting. If you have the uh, um, intuitions of how to go with it. I would be very, very happy to. I'll, I'll send you an email and maybe okay. we can meet or something. Thanks, Marika. Thank you. Okay, so um, we have uh, Ramon's shameless uh, self promotion in the chats here. So we'll note it. Um, so Ramon's drawing our attention to his recent paper, What Kind of Trust Does AI Deserve, If Any? <laughs> um, good. So uh, David Thomas is up next. So David, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you, Federica, for your for your presentation and especially grateful for the many questions that you raised and that have been raised so far by, by other interlocutors. And um, as John mentioned, we currently have a group going on uh, broadly exploring emerging technologies and privacy. We have been recently discussing uh, deep fake technologies and in my own individual work, I'm I'm uh, primarily concerned with this question of uh, how these technologies interact in the legal domain, uh, especially when when between lawyers and and judges. Uh, in the recent literature regarding deep fake technology, there's been this question about uh, just how much can be known about about these technologies to the point where the only people that can really speak to it are are the developers and uh, even then, they they can't really speak to inner workings of of deep fake technologies, how they produce, what they produce. And I personally view deep fake technologies as being a bit more dubious than I guess uh, Chat GPT, uh, especially as an instrument to in our sort of epistemic enterprises and and so on. But uh, I, I could I mean I could be persuaded, but those are just my intuitions. Well, so currently in the, in the legal uh, literature. 
there's this question about whether uh, and how much evidential policies should be changed in light of, of defect technologies. And right now, it, it appears practitioners are optimistic about that the, the system, legal systems can adapt without any mm-hmm. too much additional uh, uh, changes or need for a di- uh, response from from legislatures. And I'm wondering if you if you have any sort of uh, uh, no- notions or thoughts about whether defect technologies are so different from compare from analogous uh, technologies like uh, photographs, uh, videos, and and so forth that it would require some additional um, understanding from our legislatures or our judges to uh, fully respond to in, in some uh, in yeah in response to their continued use. Yeah. Thanks, uh, David. I, that's exactly what we were discussing this morning with, uh, with my colleagues in this uh, Solaris project, you know, and uh, we, have, uh, uh, we have experts uh, uh, from, from, the, the, from the legal domain, and we are trying to learn from them. We didn't go very deep yet, but that's exactly the question I asked them, and they, they haven't answered yet. It will be an object for a future meeting, so I may be in touch with you with, uh, about this, because... Uh, uh, that was exactly the, so the, the the legal scholar in uh, in the group was uh, trying to explain this morning uh, why we need this uh, cross legal approach because with the deep fakes uh, it can be about private about public law and about competition law and about all these things so the first point today was just to understand what these different legal perspectives might be and the question that i asked and we are going to investigate in next is uh, does does it make a difference that these are digital technologies and generative AI specifically? And what is the difference with respect to uh, uh, analog technologies? And uh, that's that, that's the thing that we are going to investigate. So short answer is, uh, I don't know today, uh, but that's exactly one thing that we are going to uh, to investigate. And because it looks like that you are on similar issues, I made a note to get in touch with you because uh, we clearly have to... Uh, to exchange views. For me, it would be uh, very important to understand exactly what it is that makes the difference from saying uh, 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 comics uh, that uh, disseminate uh, false or a kind of funny content on a public uh, persona kind of thing and a fabricated content in deepfake that is generated like the Pope wearing the white coat that was circulating yesterday. I think it it, it is important that we understand exactly what is the difference uh, in there. Uh, answer coming soon. I will be in touch. Great. And uh, um, and as a disclaimer, I made a note about your uh, your paper, uh, Ramon. I, I I think now that I am more in these projects with people on AI stuff, then it will really become crucial that the the notion of trust uh, is explicitly discussed. And you are on the list of things that we have to study. Thank you, Federica. And uh, you know the the one that I'm working on is uh, right now is called AI as an epistemic technology, and it's also very similar to what you're trying to do, right? Bring this instrument as a creator of knowledge and acknowledging that it has an active participation in the inquiry process. Super. I would Great. love to we, see the draft. <laughs> Great. So we have a question from Joe. Yeah, uh, I just thought of this idea that you know. We are going on, continuing with the idea of uh, deep fakes. It kind of going maybe the other direction that Ramon had uh, 
propose, what can't AI do? Instead of what can it do and how much it can do, what can it do is something I'm curious if you had thought about. So in particular, uh, you know, what you were talking about, uh, posting uh, information or something uh, editorial, it looks like it's uh, news, you know. Uh, in particular, I went through social media the other day and I came by this, what's supposed to be kind of an archival post of news from MTV in the 90s or something, right? And they had the reporter there that everybody recognized. But what I found curious and really caught me and I looked through the comments, the responses was that people could immediately tell, but not propositionally. They couldn't quite articulate propositionally, but there's just something about the way it looked, something about the performance that immediately triggered people and they were able to identify, oh, wait a minute, this is not right, even though everything else looked very yeah. uh, genuine in its archival sort of presentation. Yes, that is exactly what we will be trying to articulate uh, in uh, what we call uh, the, 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 uh, the scale of uh, trustworthiness. And that's why we, we want to identify these elements, you know, what it is that makes you to trust or distrust or make doubtful. And it is not just the quality of, uh, of the image, say. It may be a combination of things, where it is posted, where you see it, who is sharing it, all these elements. And so it is really sociotechnical, you see. That's exactly the thing that we are uh, that we are trying to set up, and then we will have a pilot uh, uh, with the participants, and we will uh, test our scale and see whether we are right that this is how we get to trust these uh, deep fakes. Exactly about the elements that you mentioned, and we hope to have something more substantial in a few months. I'm so happy that you that you say these things because it looks like that we are on the uh, on on the on the right track to to analyze this. Uh, this deep fake. So. Great. Okay. So um, there are obviously there's there are many connections between what, uh, what we're doing here in the center and what you're up to, Federica. Um, what I would say is, let's hope we can continue these discussions in various ways, off uh, offline and uh, or by email. And um, I'd like to thank you for for a really. A very stimulating conversation, a really great presentation. And um, obviously these are topics that you've mapped out for, um, for future work. It looks like uh, we're going to stay in business us philosophers for quite a while. Um, so at this point um, we're coming to the end of this session and I'd just like to thank you again. And if everyone can, can thank Federica for a great presentation. And I thank you. And also for your patience uh, for the disruptions. I mean, uh, no, it was a pleasure. You had a, you have to have a co-presenter, you know, you have to oh, give yes. credit and the, just like you gave the AI credit, you have to give your daughter credit. <laughs> yeah. They have to start early. <laughs> yes, indeed. She can get her Google Scholar account going at this point. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you all for your great questions. Thank okay. you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.